to the Wild Brood Podcast. On this episode, I sit down with conservation biologist Dana Gibson-Webb, and we chat about conservation biology with a heavy emphasis on land conservation. With a bachelor's in sustainability science and biology, and her master's in biology with an emphasis in research, Dana is the perfect person to advocate for the land. The Lorax would be so proud. And teach us about the trials and tribulations of getting us stubborn humans to agree on shared values. But first, like always, her favorite animals are, in her words... Bobcats, because cats are my favorite family of animals, and I love these small but feisty felines. They exist all over North America, and I admire their adaptability and their adorable stubby tails. Oh, and she loves brown sugar oat milk lattes, so if you feel inspired listening to her chat, make sure to send her one. Okay, grab a cup of coffee, and let's get started. Okay, so let's get this started. Okay, uh, Danny, what is a conservation biologist? Yeah, so I, when I think about conservation biology and what a conservation biologist does, I kind of like to break down the term. So, you know, conservation comes from the want to conserve things or, you know, keep things in a like, good state of being. And biology is the study of life. So someone who is a conservation biologist is someone who, you know, studies how we can maintain different diversity in life. So if you had to like group yourself, are you more like a land conservation biologist or more of like a educating yeah. conservation biologist? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think I'm focused, like my research experience has been on land conservation for sure. But then I, of course, have spent a lot of time um, working on communicating with the public and trying to educate the public and getting the public involved in advocacy efforts. Um, so that definitely shapes my perspectives. So probably like the reason why I do all of this is because I love animals. So like that's my personal like reason for doing it, even though like my actual work doesn't necessarily like reflect a specific species of animal or something like that. Like that is the reason behind, like that is my my will to get up and do it. So I'm, I'm probably like more so like a conservation advocate Awesome. Okay, I forgot to add this to the outline, but I think it really bears being answered. What is the difference between conservation and preservation? Because I think people get them mixed up all the time. Yeah, so I think preservation is definitely like making sure that something that's already there is like continuing to exist in its current state. Um, Whereas conservation is oftentimes like taking things that aren't necessarily under any sort of protection and protecting it or you know if it's species of wildlife trying to make sure that the diversity the genetic diversity the species diversity within that species of wildlife is maintained and doesn't go away perfect okay what inspired you to be a conservation biologist and how did you become one because i feel like every like little person has this like i saw jane goodall one day and i just knew that i wanted to be her or i saw steve Irwin and i was like blown away what is your superhero origin story yes so i grew up on a family farm in rural virginia and so growing up i got to you know spend a lot of time outside and I would ride around with my dad and the tractors and all that good stuff. And, you know, I would get to see little bunny rabbits and white-tailed deer and skunks. And we'd walk in the woods and flip over rocks and look at salamanders. And I just, I loved animals. And so when I learned that animals were in danger, there were people that didn't get to experience that life that I did, where I really got to, you know, understand the natural world and how it worked. I was ready to go like I was like this is what I want to do I mean since I was like a little little kid and that just feeling never really 
got surpassed by anything else. And I think that, you know, having that ag background and my dad and grandfather working every day on the farm, I learned a lot about, you know, how we can use the environment, but making sure that we take care of it while we're using it so that it, you know, continues to give us back things because we're not exploiting it. And I think that that really, really stuck with me growing up. And that's really what kind of initially frames my first perspective on how conservation biology works. And so, like I said, this is what I've always wanted to do. And so I chose my undergrad because it had the first um, undergraduate sustainability science program in the country, Furman University. And I went there and it was the greatest experience ever. Uh, I got lots of research experience. I got to do a study abroad in Costa Rica. What? Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's where. What, did, what did you study in Costa Rica? Um, it was a tropical ecology field course. So we got to go in lots of different ecosystems within Costa Rica and see all of the diversity of wildlife and natural resources and like all of those cool things there. And that really, you know, they need some good field experience. And then after that study abroad, I did um, a couple summers of field work and then ended up writing my senior thesis. And that really inspired me to pursue research. And I really enjoyed that. So I decided to get a research-based master's degree, which um, brought me out to Idaho because there's a lot more land and opportunity to conserve things in the Rocky Mountains and in the Mountain West. So I decided to go West and I said, I can live in Idaho for two years, it's fine. Um, that was six years ago. I have not left and I really like the environment here and just the way that Idahoans, I feel like, really care about the land around them and their natural resources. And it's just, I think, a very good place to work on conservation. It's very inspirational, I think. So that's how I ended up in Idaho and how I You're am. You're stuck here forever. You yeah, know, I know. Right? I know. <laughs> that's okay. There's, I always joke because I'm a native Idaho and we've tried to leave multiple times, but there's like, you always get pulled back in. It doesn't matter what you try to do. Oh yeah. So. No, it's a great place. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Being a lifer. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so, okay. That is crazy awesome, mm -hmm. especially the Costa Rica because I, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, Idaho. I think because I've been in Idaho for my, my entire life, I, I guess I get kind of blinded to how much natural resources we have here. Yeah. And also that we have a... I would say the average Idahoan has a really unique relationship with the land and it's I think it's a healthy balance of conservation and land use yeah, at the same time. For sure. Um so I can see why Idaho called to you yeah. in that regard. Yeah, it's been super interesting as like a study area and just being involved in the conservation community. It's very collaborative, which I like. Yeah, and it's funny too because Okay, so I'll get into this later in the podcast, but Dani wrote two research papers and her master's one landed her in a place around Pocatello, which when people think of Pocatello, and at least in my mind, like Pocatello's like, ew, gross. <laughs> it's like in the middle of nowhere. But after reading your paper, I, again, I had no idea the, the dense natural resources that were out there. And so before we get into like the meat and potatoes of what your research was, I really want you to explain to people what an anthrome is and what an ecoservice is. Because when I first started talking to you and I was like, be on my podcast and you started using these terms, I'm like, I am really dumb. I don't know what she's talking about. Yeah, for sure. No idea. Yeah, as in all science, we get really hung up on our jargon and we get so used to using it with each other that we forget that they're not like normal <laughs> terms for people. 
And so you might be more familiar with what a biome is for an ecosystem. You know, a biome is a type of ecosystem that is characterized by, you know, it's rainfall and what it is. And so you have your like temperate grasslands or your rainforests or your savanna, that sort of thing. And so an anthrome is that sort of concept, but instead of focusing on the natural world, it's focusing on the human world. And so think about like cities or the suburbs or agriculture, farmland. Um, so there are different categories of how we can think about areas of human development in the same way that we think about our natural places like biomes. So it's just applying that biome concept to human dominated landscapes. And then ecosystem service is the term that's used to describe the benefits that humanity gets from nature. And it's really, really stood out to me when I was learning about all of this stuff, because what I have been most called to do is making people care about the environment around them and making people understand that by having that tree there, having that forest there, that our society benefits from that, regardless of whether we just set it aside for it to stay there um, as a forest, as a natural place, that we still get benefits from that as society, as people. And so ecosystem service is a way that people think about those things that we benefit from as humans. And you can measure these in a variety of ways. And uh, I think one of the first ways that people really thought about ecosystem services was creating a monetary value. And so it was the, the shade that your tree in front of your house provides you X amount of dollars saved on your utility bill. So that's a really easy way to think about like a basic ecosystem service. However, what I learned through um, working in my lab at my master's program, in my master's program, was that there's other ways to think about value that isn't just economics. And so thinking about how people feel that their culture or their you know, societal value, just what they think, their personal perspectives and feelings and ideas about these places or the benefits that they get from their local landscapes is just as important, just as valuable, and may even be more nuanced and more explanatory of what those true values are, as opposed to trying to put a monetary value on it. Some of those values that we have with nature and with places can't really be easily broken down into monetary values. There's values that we as people hold that don't just equal straight up money values. Right. I, I do think that that monetary value is actually, I feel that it feels like a recent attitude, like within the last hundred years after the industrial age, when we were just wiping out forests because money. Um, so fun times. But the next question rolls right into this. And I think this is when I was typing out this question, I'm like, I don't even know how to word this because it's, I was reading your papers and I don't know if it was just me, but I was feeling like, I was getting secondhand frustrated for you yeah. when you were talking about conservation targets and just like people and their varying opinions. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, we can't even agree on it. Like people can't even agree on their favorite football team. So yep. how are we supposed to save the one planet we have? So most of your study focused on strategies for conserving land, how to identify conservation targets, and a lot of the difficulties that come with getting a population to agree upon what gets conserved and why. 
You mentioned in your papers that 75% of terrestrial ice-free surfaces are shaped by human choices, which, holy cow, I had no idea. Yeah. Um, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. And that forest cover has declined by 2.3 million square kilometers between 2000 and 2012. With growth being inevitable, and it is inevitable, and the land is going to be used regardless of what, you know, we have a say. So your job, that's your job. Your job is like, okay, how do we, how do, how do we make this um, worth something? And... It just seems so frustrating. It seems so frustrating. Like, so can you share how you convince people that the environment is worth saving? Please expand upon the very frustrating aspect of your job. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of conservation is educating the public. I mean, and a lot of things that I think the general person believes is really influenced by politics and by what people around them are saying and is it necessarily driven by the facts so a lot of it is just like really telling people actually what's happening um and i think a lot of people have almost like a come to jesus type moment when they realize like oh my gosh we are having this much impact on the the planet and i think we've really seen that in the last few years with climate um, and climate change policies and stuff going through and more climate marches and stuff happening because people are realizing like oh this is actually happening and getting more facts about it. I think that just trying to find common ground between people is really important and using your local place that you're in. And yeah, people may have different views on exactly what we should do with that specific place. But I mean, if you go down in the Owyhees in Idaho, I mean, people, the, the farmers and ranchers there love their landscape. The um, recreationists yeah, yeah. <laughs> love their landscape. And you can start there on that common ground. And so if you use the place that you're in to kind of anchor where you're talking about and get people on the same page there, then, you know, you can kind of find those places with the diversity of different stakeholders and that sort of thing to work together to come to some sort of decision on how to, you know, move forward and manage the, the resource or land. And yeah, it's it's difficult and it's hard, but um, I think that's why it's so important is because it's difficult and hard. And, you know, you just, you have to appreciate that, yeah, there's a large diversity and that's really hard to deal with and find common ground, but also like there is that diversity. That's really cool. I mean, um, yeah. the fact that we have so much biodiversity in the world Mm -hmm. is you know what creates all these opportunities for different niches and different resources and that sort of thing and i think that just kind of instead of like focusing on being so overwhelmed with how big the problem is focusing on more so the positives um and saying like okay these are different opportunities that okay farmer joe and fly fisherman tim both really love trout and so we know that we can figure out that they both love their trout and so what do we need for trout? We need clean water. And so then we can talk to both of them and figure out how we can get to that clean water that will protect that shared value that they do have. So yeah. when you were out in the field, what was the most like inspiring scenario you came across and what it was the most specifically frustrating scenario? Because I know you had to talk to a ton of people when you were gathering data. Yeah. And I'm sure there was a few moments where you're just like, how have you made it to adulthood? I'm imagining. Yes. Just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So specifically thinking about my master's research. So myself and a team of some um, other graduate students and undergraduate students 
went around um, during the summer of 2016 and interviewed over 500 people within the Portneuf River watershed, which is a fairly small area. And the most frustrating sticks out very clearly in my mind because I got like halfway through this survey with this man and he realized that I was asking him questions about climate change. And he decided that that was, that was too political for him and that was that was just false and that wasn't real and I was leading him on and he literally got up and stormed away from me. And you were, what do you do? Do you just kind of like look at him and be like, yeah, okay then? <laughs> I mean, there, there are some people that they just don't, they're, they're so stuck in their particular worldview that they aren't willing to see outside of that and those people mm-hmm. aren't willing to collaborate or compromise and you know those mm-hmm. aren't the people that I'm going to be able to work with because they're never going to see me right. as anything more than a hippie environmentalist even though I'm not you know I'm more than that <laughs> um yeah so that's that was definitely like the most frustrating and um I think some of the the most inspiring was talking to um some younger folks who you know were in college or young adults and were just so excited about the opportunities and really wanted to make a difference. And I think that, you know, Mm -hmm. talking to people who want to improve the environment around them is just super, super important and really inspiring. So, yeah, I'd I'd imagine just being like, yes, I'm doing what I'm, what I've been called to do. Yes. Um, so thinking about like, We'll call him cranky rancher man. I have no idea if he's a rancher. And then you have your idealistic college students. As a conservation biologist, just in general, how how do you distinguish realistic expectations versus idealistic expectations? Because I, idealistically, if I had my way and if I was a dictator, there would be way more wilderness and there would be a lot of different rules. And it doesn't work because, again, diversity is a good thing. And we look at biodiversity as being a good thing. How, how, how do you look at like a, we'll say a conservation target because we're going with trout and trout's really important in Idaho. How, how do you say we're going to save, think, no, it's bull trout. Yeah. Yeah. It's bull trout. Bull trout. How do you, how do you like say we're going to save all of them and that would be idealistic versus like, okay, well we have all of these other water rights that we have to take into account. And so how, how do you distinguish? So the scientist in me is just screaming data data this is what yeah. we have data for so yeah. i mean literally that that's why we have data so we can mm-hmm. take a, a survey you know a, a scientifically um with enough power which means it, it is has enough data in it to really tell you what's going on in a sample of the overall population and we take a sample of the perspectives of people if that's what we're going to focus on and so we found that in the area that we were in, in the Portneuf watershed, about 500 people was about the sweet spot. Um, and so that was our target. And we took the information from that to create proposals. And so using, using the information and trying to make sure that we get the, from the grumpy people that are, see things one way, all the way over to the super idealistic people that see things another way. And if you get a representative sample of that perspective, then you can have data that represents that population. And then from that, you can see if there are certain trends. And usually there are. Usually, I mean, there's one thing that people, you know, most people really care about having food 
or having clean drinking water and then you can use those things as your common identity your shared identity your shared values to then kind of work towards your goals of you know saving your endangered trout species because you know if we save our endangered trout species then you know we have that clean water that we need to drink right it sounds like science is the ultimate democracy so shifting gears a little bit um because i know like the, the heart and soul of both of your studies really centered around land and land use. Um, I'm going to switch things up a bit. How have lands and wildernesses been traditionally protected? After the traditional protections, we have public lands and then we have private conservation easements. What's the difference between those two and what, in your personal opinion, do you think is better? Yeah, so traditionally with um, land protection, we kind of set our land aside and usually the government will own it and the government will decide how much they want people to recreate on it or whether they don't want people to you know have super intensive recreation on it or motorized vehicles and that sort of thing so that's kind of the traditional model think about you know national parks think about your um, national forests think about your you know your state parks even um and so they'll they'll decide to set aside a area of land like yellowstone or um something like that and be like, okay, this place is obviously like super unique, super important. So we'll set this aside and make sure that it meets these certain parameters and we can preserve the wildlife and the um, geothermal things. And I'm obviously not a geologist. There are geologists from my staff would laugh at your speculations. Um, That's okay. (laughs) Um... (laughs) and all of that stuff so that's like kind of the traditional way of, of thinking about it and so as we've progressed within the field of conservation biology you know we've realized that you can't have just like yellowstone and then way up have glacier national park because that will kind of limit especially the animals and wildlife that move between them you know we we can create these boundaries but it's not like our our wilderness or our wildlife really respects political boundaries those organisms are going to move and so we there was a, a thing that came about talking about corridors between different areas of protected land and so that came about and so in some places you'll see that the government especially in some smaller countries are is able to do that and create corridors that they protect to connect big swaths of area But other ways of doing that is doing a little bit more of a a mosaic type of thing where, you know, you work with private landowners and you say, okay, can we maybe preserve this section of land? And um, that's kind of where the concept of a conservation easement comes in, which is a like a legal way to um, designate what kind of development can happen on that land and limit the um, negative environmental impacts on that piece of property for forever. So it's tied within to the deed of that land so that if even if the land gets sold, that is still tied into that property itself. And so that's a, just a different way of managing the landscape to kind of provide particular values and preserve those particular values on a private section of land. Whereas with public land that is managed by the federal government in the U.S. And we have multiple uses 
on these lands. And so there's, you know, mineral and oil extraction is one of the things that like BLM is, is mandated to do as is recreation, as is, you know, water and land quality and wildlife management. So there's many, many uses on public lands and because it's for the public, you know, it, it's, it's for the benefit of all of us. And so just as we talked about earlier, that there's so many diverse opinions on things with large swaths of public land, there's many different often conflicting ideas on how that land should be managed and protected. And yes, the federal government does have areas within their managed public lands that, you know, they have higher protections on certain areas and that sort of thing. They still have to balance their multiple use mandates as well. So it's with the public lands, it's less about less about conservation, more about uh, this weird balance, whereas a private conservation easement, you know, Farmer Joe can be like, no one will touch my land for oil in perpetuity forever. Yep, if that's what that's they right. decide to do, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, you know, each conservation easement can be written specifically to um, whatever the landowner really wants to see. So if they, you know, like, I think they can even do them for more so like historical preservation reasons. So in your pers- or your opinion as a conservation biologist, what do you think is better for land conservation? in its like traditional definition. Like if, if you were if you were dictator Danny and you could do like what you will within like some certain bounds, would you be like everything is like we're doing the Patagonia land trust here or, you know, BLM, even though, you know, things might be I think we need both. Like... I really think we need both because I mean, because we have the multiple use mandates within BLM or Forest mm-hmm. Service, we can have these huge areas. Of land that's mm-hmm. set aside and yes it it can have multiple uses but you know for the most part they are trying to mitigate all of these values that we as uh, American citizens care about and value however like I was saying earlier with the idea that animals don't care about our political boundaries we need to have areas of protection between these larger areas. So we need the large areas, especially because there are certain animals like grizzly bears that have really, really large ranges. And so it's important to have a really large area for those grizzly bears or wolves or um, even like golden eagles and stuff like that that require large swaths of land to be conserved, which I just don't think, at least right now in the way our government and society works could be done with a a private landowner um yeah and so i think that having both is super important because you get that diversity of size you get the diversity Mm -hmm. of location and like i said i think that diversity is really important because if we have diversity we have redundancies and that creates a more resilient system so especially in the face of climate change um, if we have more resiliency, we will be more likely to withstand the changes that are going to happen to our climate. So no monocropping private conservation easements. There was like a little, a little like paragraph, and I think it was your master's thesis that had mentioned the ethics of conservation biology, and it was something I have never thought of. The ethics of conservation biology and land. How do scientists prioritize which species are protected, and then what gives the human us the right to choose which species to be are worthy of being protected versus those which were like, well, that's too bad. I'm sorry, your little field mouse. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. So sadly, 
a lot of the way how we manage especially wildlife conservation is determined by funding and the endangered species list is often dominated by larger more charismatic organisms as opposed to you know smaller endemic species or you know vertebrates or other things that aren't quite as flashy or you know easy as easy to get listed and so that's i think a big thing that that we talk about is you know trying to make sure that we can conserve um the diversity in like non-listed species or in um other other organisms that you know may not always get as much love um as you know the big charismatic like um giant panda for example is the one i always think of that you know it's literally the logo of world wildlife fund like yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. that has so much money and energy and effort put to it whereas something like you know there's two endemic species of little tiger beetles that live here in Idaho. Mm-hmm. And most people probably don't even know that. So you're correct. I had no idea. I'll have to look that up now. They're so <laughs> fun. They're beautiful. They're beautiful. And I really want to go look at them. Yes. I have a feeling like maybe this is a little off topic, but isn't this why California listed a uh, bumblebee under fish because they needed a way to get it classified? I it's think like, so. I think so. I'm not hundred percent sure on that specific case but mm-hmm. yes I think that there are some ways that like the laws are written in a certain way and mm-hmm. they were written a while ago and even though the science moves forward it doesn't necessarily mean that the policy does so we have to find ways to fit what we know now into this more archaic I guess this older policy or law or whatever and yeah that can be really hard and that's exactly what happened. Weird archaic laws with weird archaic wording. And yes, yes, har har. I've heard all the jokes about how dumb California is and how they can't tell a fish from a bee. Very funny. But there is something to this weird piece of news we all saw this year. So you see, in 1970, then-Governor Ronald Reagan signed into law the California Endangered Species Act, which included invertebrates under its umbrella. The law was revised in 1984, and the term invertebrate was removed. But by then, the law already protected a land invertebrate known as the Trinity bristle snail. In 2019, four species of bumblebee were put forth for endangered status consideration, which was quickly reversed in 2020 following a lawsuit by California's agricultural industry, citing that the protections only covered marine invertebrates. On a technicality, they were right. However, the California Fish and Wildlife have the power to define what a fish is. An invertebrate does fall under that definition. Given that the Trinity bristle snail had already set a precedent for being protected even after the changes in 1984, Justice Roby argued that the legislature could have put forth grievances way back in 1984 and that henceforth the bumblebee would be protected under CESA. So regardless of what you feel about it, these endangered bumblebees are here to stay. I'd imagine, and also again, that echoing current of frustration of trying to get people to be like, hey, I know you really don't like bugs, but they're they're really important for the food chain. So if you want to keep these bigger animals around, you know, maybe we should care about the tiger beetles. Yeah. Yep. Maybe. Which is, is kind of why I have latched on so to the concept of ecosystem services, because maybe I can't get someone to care about a little bug, but I can get them to care about, you know, pollinators and the benefit of pollination. And so if we talk about that and we talk about that value, then 
that can trickle down into getting the bugs protected, you know, just for example. And so I, that's why I think that the ecosystem services concept is such a helpful tool. And that was, I think, why I ended up focusing so much on ecosystem services in my conservation research was because it's a way to make people care about, you know, these things that they don't think they care about, but they care about what those things in nature do. Right. So I guess like the secret title of a conservation biologist is actually a social engineer in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think that conservation biology is not like possible without engaging the public because I mean, it's inherently interdisciplinary because it's, I mean, you can't conserve things just by focusing on nature. You have to think about the human aspect. I think that's kind of why I was um, drawn to sustainability science because it takes, you know, the economic, social constructs, the human ideas and the natural world and tries to figure it all out. So this is not in the outline, but I'm listening to you talk. How do you keep from becoming like the most, the, like the world's largest misanthrope H- how how do you like maintain a positive like a positive attitude in this when you're just like you re- you open the news page and they're like they did what i'm gonna go back to bed like, yeah well i mean i think again if i focus on all of the negative things i'll get super super depressed but there are so many people out there who care and who do so much i mean think about um Greta, the girl that does all the climate change work, like she's so inspirational. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? And I mean, one of my like childhood heroes was Jane Goodall. And like she single-handedly did so much for primates and for women in science. And like there are trailblazers out there and focusing on the fact that you know there are so many people that care about this stuff and that you know there are people working on this all the time and it's not just me i don't have to solve it all i just have to Mm -hmm. you know work with people who also care about it who also want to work on it and do the best that we can together and i think that focusing on kind of the opportunity for collaboration and growth mm-hmm. and positivity as opposed to just feeling so overwhelmed and that sort of thing can be helpful for not feeling so hopeless and then another thing that really helps is like I just get so excited when I like talk about or see animals like every single time I see a moose I'll cry because um, <laughs> I just love them and I mean, I, the first time I got to see a sea turtle in the wild, I, I cried in my little snorkel gear. I was like sobbing and just, I, I've cried in my scuba gear too. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so just like people that they find that infectious, you know, like yeah. if you have passion about something and it gets you super pumped and super excited and you share that with other people, they're going to be way more likely to be like, Oh my gosh, like this person cares so much. Let's talk to her about it. Like, oh my gosh, I want to feel that too. And so talking to people who care so much about the same things that I do and getting as as excited as maybe I do, or almost as excited as I do about these things and (laughs) focusing on that positive energy, because yeah, I mean, we're going to have a lot of shitty decisions and we're going to have a lot of bad news and people that 
don't run things maybe the way we think that they should be run, but focusing on, you know, those folks that do make a difference and do encourage that positive change, I think is, is what is most, most beneficial for us all. I love that. I love the infectious positivity because you're so right. Okay. So this is totally not related to what I was just asking. To marry both of your studies, and I found this super interesting, and I, again, I apologize if I misinterpreted the data. Um, so given your first study with urban infill and your second study with urban people being least concerned about conservation targets, do you think humans are better suited in, for city living or suburban sprawl? Um, and what do you consider to be the most environmentally conscious? Because the way that I read it, it seems like it's more environmentally friendly for people to live in a city, but they also become more disconnected yeah. from nature in a city. For sure. So. And so the, the idea is that like, if we have people living in high density areas that has less of an ecological footprint or is using less land, I don't really like ecological footprint because it's propaganda from fossil fuel companies. Um, <laughs> Noted, I didn't know that. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, like all the climate footprint stuff is was totally created by like Exxon and all of them. That's bad. Gosh, dang it. I know. Are you ready to get kind of mad? maybe a little mad. So the choosefinch.com worded this better than I could possibly word it, so I'm just gonna read it word for word. I asked Google, who created the carbon footprint calculator? And Google said, via choosefinch.com, BP, two decades ago, BP teamed up with Ogilvy and Mather to launch Beyond Petroleum and release the world's first carbon footprint calculator, which placed the onus on individual consumers to shift attention away from the corporates who were heavily dependent on the extraction of fossil fuels. Because... Hello! I like money! Oil companies, you know, well, they have, they can pay the most, so they have, like, the best of the best, you know? Lobbying. Hate it. It's the worst. Okay, so, if we think about, if we think about urban infill, or having more dense human developments, we're using less land per person. So that's good in terms of overall landscape impact of humanity, as opposed to urban sprawl, which is a lower density human environment, which takes up more land, potentially more resources, usually more resources. But when we have people that live in cities and don't often get outside or interact with nature, then we find that they don't necessarily have as close of a understanding or an appreciation of the natural world around them. And this is where the concept of, you know, green spaces and urban parks and all of that really comes into play. And so making sure that even though we, you know, people who people live in like New York City, but, you know, they still have Central Park. Um, and I think trying to create opportunities for that within, you know, your kind of urban planning is super important so that you can create those nature centers or those areas where people can experience their natural resources, um, and having like learning centers where people understand where their food is coming from, where their water is coming from, why it's clean and trying to, um, create those sort of opportunities in urban areas, I think would kind of be like a win-win. So I think that having well thought out, well planned, high, high concentration, high density areas that, you know, promote walking, promote biking, have greenery can help with all sorts of things of making sure, you know, 
we have some habitat within our urban areas for species that can thrive in those areas for making sure that we as humans can still you know get the ecosystem services provided by green space and for making sure that we as people and as a society even if we are growing in our urbanization um, still can have that connection with the natural world i wonder if there's a study i'll have to look this up i wonder if there's a study about happiness oh yeah there's uh, tons of them yeah it's a big it's that's actually a big area of study um, people looking at how green space and parks benefit mental health. And I think even like, I think there are some studies that have connected physical health too. I would imagine there's more walking. And also I know that green spaces promote like uh, lower temperatures in cities. And, and I think improve air see. quality. So. so if that little factoid about BP left a terrible taste in your mouth, here's some ear bleach for you. I found this study in the Journal of Physiological Anthropology and it is called interaction with indoor plants may reduce psychological and physiological stress by suppressing autonomic nervous system activity in young adults. So basically they did a study where you have two groups and one transplants um, an indoor plant and the other one does a computer task and vice versa and they found that, you know, messing with plants makes people happier on a psychological and physiological level, which makes sense because if you have us humans, which are primates, which have been in the natural world up until pretty recently, it would make sense that humans are just happier around greenery. And Danny was right. There's thousands of journal articles talking about the happy effects that being outside and having green spaces. The first listener question, which I thought was was great, was, are suburban wildlife reserves adequate spaces for wildlife to thrive? And that was asked by Nine Heldon Leben, which that right and i'm curious too are we providing enough space the data suggests no really i mean habitat loss and biodiversity loss and climate change are like the three big things that are facing wildlife Mm -hmm. today and i mean yeah we can have little natural areas that are within our suburbs or within our human spaces to protect wildlife but you know, if we're if we're only having those opportunities for the wildlife, while at the same time we're cutting down the forests for lots of lumber and everything, that doesn't leave a lot of room for the wildlife. So you have to think about it as a, like a larger scale. Yes, mm-hmm. it's great, and we need more places where we can preserve animals within our human landscapes. But we also have to have areas that are kind of more outside human interaction, like central Idaho wilderness, um, to protect those organisms like wolverine that don't do well with hu- human interactions, unlike raccoons or coyotes or something that are much have much higher tolerance um, for interacting. With. And so, again, we need that diversity of different types of landscapes and of different sizes and of different locations and areas if we really want to preserve as much biodiversity as we can and have as much resilience in the face of climate change as we can. I have a sneaky feeling I already know the answer to this, but people have lawns. I'm assuming you're a huge proponent of xenoscaping. I'm, I'm assuming you're a, like the like plant gardens and natural wildflowers and stuff like that. Like if you want to really do something like right now, yeah, like oh yeah, I mean having lawn. having. I mean, check with your HOA. Um, right. <laughs> don't get yourself in trouble. But, um, yeah. you know, planting native plants, having pollinator-friendly locations in your house. You know, you can even they have, if you live in an apartment and you don't have a lawn, I mean, you can 
put um, they have these stickers that you can put on your your window so that birds are less likely to fly into them and because a lot of birds will not realize that it's glass and they'll run into they'll collide with the window and a lot of times they can die you know another thing is if you have have pets especially house cats keeping your cats inside or only having them on a leash i put my cat on a leash he actually likes it which is i know surprising but you know being a mindful pet parent i think is an easy way for people to you know be a little bit more environmentally no, it's, friendly it's crazy to me because i know that that's like one of the most controversial like you can tell a cat person that and your chances of getting like smack talked is like 90 percent. but that is by far in every person i've talked to even my unreleased episodes that's like number one yeah keep your cats inside oh yeah well no. i mean i even have like my i have we have a, a big dog kennel out back that we don't really ever actually put the dogs in so i put in the cat tree and i let the cat go in his little in his kennel we call it kitty jail um and i let him <laughs> probably should cut this out but um, <laughs> we put him we put him in kitty jail and he just hangs out in his little cat tree and gets to like look outside and look at bugs and birds and stuff but he doesn't actually you know go and eat anything and then it, i mean it also doesn't put doesn't put him at risk either you know right when, and that's i think that's the other thing that people forget is like no your, your cat is a huge risk of also being hurt yep so many things. Yeah. Brendan, Brendan Gardner wants to know, what is the ecological difference between natural and human-caused extinction? Hmm. That's interesting. So, like, genetically, it would be exactly the same. I mean, extinction is the loss of a species. Like, they all die out. There's no genetic material left. So, you know, genetically, it would be exactly the same. Regardless of the reason why they go extinct, it would be exactly the same but in terms of like thinking about it ecologically i mean if it happened for a natural reason for like disease or you know the disease just comes through and completely wipes out the population and then they severely bottlenecks it and then the last few remaining die out i would imagine that that would have different cascading effects through the ecosystem um it would probably happen I would assume that natural extinction probably has slower effects on the rest of the ecosystem than um, human-caused extinction, just because natural-caused extinction has happened on a much longer time frame um, in terms of like thousands or millions of years, whereas most of the human-caused extinction has happened within the last few hundreds. I did some digging deep, deep down in the fossil record, and I found this little nugget for you all. Though, to be honest, I kind of want to toss it back into the hole and bury it as quickly as possible. Okay, there have been six major extinction events, and well, we are in one right now. It's known as the Holocene event, but scientists refer to it as the Anthropocene event to highlight the role man has played in it since 10,000 BC. Okay, now extinctions are a normal part of life. And scientists expect them, and so they measure them using a standard called the background rate of extinction. The recent background estimate for mammals is two extinctions per 10,000 species per 100 years. We should all get a little squirmy because extinctions are starting to happen way more than what we're expecting them. In the last 400 years alone, we've lost 89 mammal species. Yikes. Just to kind of give you guys an idea, we're at a rate where species are going extinct 100 times faster than what we should be expecting given this formula. 
So I would imagine that that would have different impacts, especially on like our plant species, like trees often have longer lifespans than, than animals do. And so the impact of an animal species going extinct from humanity might have a different impact on a tree species that's very interrelated ecologically or like interacts a lot with that particular wildlife species. Um, that might be different than if it happened on a slower, more natural ecological scale. But I mean, I think that regardless, you know, extinction is extinction. And I mean, we could have an asteroid hit us and we could all die and the cycle would start <laughs> over again. So like that, that is what it is. But right. I think that human caused extinction has a little bit more of that ethics component that we talked about. Yeah. And I'm sure you're going to love this question. And this is like a total soapbox for you. And I'm just, just <laughs> let, let us have it. Okay. What is the biggest threat to conservation? Like, just go for it. This okay. is your jam. So. It could be multiple things. It's three pronged. Okay. Three pronged. Yes. We have the biodiversity loss. We have climate change. And we have habitat loss. I think those three are the biggest problems facing successful conservation of our natural resources. So. Going to the first one, biodiversity loss. So when we lose large numbers of our populations of species, we lose the genetic diversity that's within those species, um, which creates what's called a bottleneck effect. So you have your large thing and you squish it through a little tiny amount of those little tiny space of a bottleneck, and then it can grow again, but you've lost that from that big to the, to the small, you've lost that amount of genetic diversity in the gene pool of that population and so seeing like a lot of diseases and, and genetic issues like yep. even in like the red pandas like are we seeing any of that yeah so um the easy example that i tend to think of is um they've seen it with cheetah populations um oh, interesting. they're a kind of classic um example of genetic bottlenecks um where they go from oh they went from a large population and then i think you know, humans hunted them and that sort of thing. So then it got small and then the numbers have recovered, but the population itself is more susceptible to impacts such as disease, such as climate change and that sort of thing, which brings me to the second prong, which is climate change. <laughs> and so human caused climate change is happening at a much faster rate than natural climate change should. And a lot of times organisms, especially like plant species that aren't necessarily as mobile as animal species. They can't move up a, an elevational gradient to get into cooler temperatures or, you know, the coral reefs can't get up and move to an area that is lower in acidity level. And so I think that climate change is really like exacerbating the impacts that we as humans have had on the natural environment. And it's kind of like making the problems that we've created even worse with another problem that we've created. And then finally, the habitat loss kind of ties back into that idea is that, you know, we as people dominate the world. You know, if you look at the photos or like video of night skies, you can just see it with all of the lights that we create. And so as we as people take over landscapes and change it to concrete and that sort of thing, there are less spaces for these animals to use. So when there's climate change or other things, you know, they can't, they don't have areas to move into because it's taken over by humans. It's not suitable habitat for these organisms anymore. 
So I think all of those three things are extremely interrelated and all really um, interact with each other. And I don't think you can really pull one out from the other one. So that's that's what I would say was the, the three-headed beast, the hydra of the hydra of conservation biology. <laughs> I mean, it's this, I can't argue, it's obvious. So yeah. <laughs> not that I would want to argue, but yeah, it's, it's right there. So my sister actually asked this question. She's like, if you could save one region, where would it be and why? Because everyone's got their favorite. Yeah. So if I could choose like particular biome, I would totally choose the tropical rainforest because that's the most bang for the buck. And, right. <laughs> and I mean, just the like possibilities of all of that genetic and ecosystem diversity is just crazy. When, when I did my study abroad in Costa Rica, I was just fascinated by how much there was everywhere. Like, life was just everywhere. Because especially like we think about here in Idaho, you look out and there's just sagebrush and stuff. And you know, it's yeah. only so tall. But when you look up and they're the tallest trees you've ever seen, there's not just the, you know, this landscape horizontal area. There's also so much vertical area that can create different area, different areas of niches and sort of things for, for organisms. And so I think that 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 would be probably the the place I would pick because I, I honestly feel obligated to, you know, save the most most bang for the buck. So I think tropical rainforests would be would be. That is there. a very analytical science answer <laughs> and I respect it. <laughs> all right, we all know rainforests are massive. I remember all those twenty years ago hearing about how the Amazon rainforest was in danger. And well, surprise, surprise, it's still in danger. The past six years have seen the highest rates of deforestation yet, and this episode is getting way too long to talk about the consequences of the Amazon at her tipping point. So instead, I'll leave you guys with this little gem of info. According to the National Cancer Institute, 70% of new drugs are derived from natural sources. 70,000 plant species are thought to be medicinal, and plant extinction rates are 100 to 1,000 times higher than background extinction rates. The loss of potential is really, really sad. Jane Knowles wants to know, what is the best way to get involved or to volunteer to be a part of, like, conservation of species and land? You know, what do you recommend? Yeah, so I think looking up the different, you know, conservation groups in your area, seeing how, like, what they're doing, what they're working on, and if those things, you know, correspond to your particular values and get involved. I mean, sometimes it can be, you know, writing a comment on a public process for a new development or for a renewable energy project or something like that. So getting involved in kind of the policy uh, advocacy avenue is really important. I think that, you know, if you're someone who wants to really get your hands dirty and going out into your local environment and trying to do some preservation with different groups that work on, you know, maybe water quality or, you know, growing natural um, native vegetation and participating in those sort of things or doing trail cleanups. I think there's so many different ways of things that are, you know, find what's most interesting or most passionate for you and really focusing on that because you're going to be, you're going to want to be the most involved on something that you're most passionate about. So, you know, volunteering at the zoo where, you know, you're talking to other people and getting them to care about different animals is super important, you know, if you are able, if you can give money to local groups that are doing conservation work, I mean, you know that your dollars are going directly to that. Trying to focus on the things that you care most about and then, you know, turning that into 
um, how you can get involved is the, the best way, I think, to have long-term impacts, for sure. Get a little bit of that infectious optimism and passion yeah, going. for sure. <laughs> I love it. In conclusion, what are your personal top three tips for sustainability, and how can we all be better stewards of the planet? Keep your cats inside. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I think that in terms of being a better steward for the world, I think that one thing that's really important is trying to eat local when you can, reduce the amount of you know miles that your food has to travel from the farm to your plate, and then you know getting to know your local agricultural system is super important and putting your money into your community is great. So I think that focusing on local food is a great way to, you know, really have multiple benefits within sustainability that don't necessarily just all equal environmental benefits, and then also have a little bit more of that social economic benefit as well. I think trying to reduce how much we buy, which I know I'm guilty of not doing enough, and, you know, not reusing my pasta sauce jar instead of buying a new Tupperware, you know, and trying to reduce what I'm, I'm throwing out and reusing things that I already have and, you know, using my sewing machine to repair a pair of pants that are ripped instead of buying a new pair. Um, I think that that's a really easy way and low cost way to have a, a great impact. And then thirdly, I mean, I think just getting involved in your community and going outside and seeing what nature is around you and, you know, finding out what birds are in your backyard and you know if you are out there and you experience it you're going to be way more likely to care about it and you're going to mm -hmm. you know get more more engaged and then you're going to want to ensure that that natural environment around you is healthy and sustained as long as you're in it and i think just getting involved in your community and especially like the the natural aspects of your community is especially important Thank you so much for being yes, on the show. Yes, this was so fun. For sure. So if people want to get a hold of you, and you're totally cool with people getting yes. a hold of you, if yeah, you absolutely. Not, you don't have to answer that. Yeah. Um, how can people get in touch with you to ask you questions mm -hmm. or get advice or et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. So feel free to email me. My email is Dani, my first name, D-A-I-N-E-E, -E, Marie at gmail.com. And you can always follow me on Instagram, I guess. It's not super sciencey. It's more so personal. But, you know, if you're interested in that aspect, too. You know, follow me there. Sweet. Well, thank you again. I have enjoyed this thoroughly, and I have so much just to sit here and digest, and I hope that everyone else uh, gets inspired to get outside and, as I always say, go touch some grass. Danny, thank you so much again for being on the show and sharing your wisdom with us all. And thank you, dear listener, for supporting me in this humble little journey I've embarked on. So next time you're at Trivia Night and the host asks what a conservation easement is, make sure you think of Danny while you and your group celebrate your victory over pizza. If you want to support the podcast, make sure to subscribe. And don't forget the grumpy little brood of pre-caffeinated animals I have on my website, www.wildbrood.art. And remember, a minimum 20% of every sale goes directly to the Conservation Organization of the Month. For day-to-day -day updates, be sure to follow me at wildbrood on Instagram. Thank you again, and remember, go outside and touch some grass.